Hi, this is Matthias, and today I'll interview Tim Lai, who was raised in the UK and is currently living in Porto, Portugal. I found him in our FI Europe podcast Facebook community when I asked something about option trading. And then I found out that Tim has a pretty interesting story to tell about how he escaped 9 to 5 and built two businesses on the side that generated enough money for him to sustain his life. In this episode, we talked about how to automate a day job, scaling a side hustle, and what he's currently doing in Portugal. Along the way, you'll find a lot of wisdom from a mind that celebrates logical reasoning and independent thinking. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your host, Alvar, Arminta, and Matthias. Hi, this is Matthias, and I want to introduce you this episode's sponsor, which is Everstate. Everstate is a real estate P2P aggregator, and with one account, you can build a diversified portfolio of projects of many different deal providers across 11 countries. What I really like about them is that Everstate founders also invest personal money in some of the projects, and you could choose to follow them to invest in these curated skin in the game projects manually or just using the auto invest feature like I do. With the three investment types, you can decide if you want to invest in property loans, equity or earn a steady income from rentals. Most projects are backed by collateral and you can expect returns between 5 and 18%. If you're interested, you can find more information at financial-independence.eu slash evoestate. That's spelled E-V-O-S-T-A-T-E. And you can find the link also in the show notes. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the FI Euro podcast. Today with me is Tim Lai. Say hi to the audience. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> hi, everyone. Where are you currently? Where do uh, you so hang out? Porto. Right Portugal. Portugal. I bought an apartment here in Porto. I actually just bought another one last week or two weeks ago. So I spend most of my time here now. But I still do travel around a lot because it's work, really. <laughs> my, my work is travel now. Voluntary work because I'm oh, I, I'm sort of FI already, but it's um it's not. I wouldn't like to say I would ever retire. Like mm -hmm. it, I'm not the kind of person to retire early. I'm too hyperactive and all of that. <laughs> but but it ha I it's I think FI really is the whole the whole goal of it is to help um, give you opportunities and freedom to make decisions. Um, exactly. So um, you're, you're in Portugal. In the recent months, it was very often that people from Portugal have been in the podcast. I'm not sure why this is. Maybe it's a nice place on earth or maybe it's also good for people uh, to choose a residence. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's a great place to live. Um, I think the the thick and thin of it is is financially advantageous, fiscally advantageous. Most people just won't say it up front, but I'll say it. It's like a really good place to be if you don't have um, if you don't have strong connections to Portugal previously because they're trying to attract high skill high net worth individuals to come and live and work so for instance there's the there's the non-habit the non-habitual residence regime and if you're if you're a high skilled person like i am um in terms of the professional qualifications you hold then your your tax is limited at a certain amount currently 20 percent before social security and i can talk a lot about that side as well but foreign income is not taxed if it's if it's a high skill earned income but if it's unearned income like dividends royalties pensions pensions is going to change but dividend royalties is not taxed so yeah fantastic um, good. but it is a really good place to live like i mean i've i now call it home because the food is so good the weather is so good 
uh, yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's exactly what you want in a in a place to be. So no coincidence that so many people hang out there. Um, weather in Germany is right now uh, at the end of February. It's uh, three degrees. Uh, how's your weather? Uh, today's a bit cooler. It's about 15 degrees. Ah. Um, but <laughs> last week was 22 degrees and it was really uh, nice and warm. And it's it's really sunny as well. So like it doesn't feel like it's 15 degrees. Uh, pretty good, yeah. Yeah, yesterday it was raining here. Yeah, um, so, um, and you mentioned that you kind of FI, um, that you, you, so you have the options to kind of design your life as you mm. want it. So, but you're not kind of rich right now. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> you, well, like in, in terms of a monetary value, I wouldn't say so, but like, you know, re relative to Portuguese people, yes, I would say so. Um, <laughs> it's all relative, like, um, mm. you know, like, uh, Let's say you're earning £2,000 a month in London. You're not going to get anywhere with that. But if £2,000 in Portugal, oh my, you, you'll have a really good lifestyle. Um, and, but even still, like, it, it, it makes a huge difference if you're, uh, the amount of money you're paying towards accommodation. So I know of so many people who are trapped by their own mortgage in the UK. Um, they're trapped because they need to find a specific job also well, maybe not a specific job but they need to find a job that pays enough to pay cover their mortgage which in many cases leaves them wanting to needing to live in big cities like london birmingham manchester and i'm not the kind of guy who really enjoys those huge cities i prefer small cities and you know that's that's just a harder way to go um if you do that uh but i mean i bought my apartment here in cash so <laughs> like we don't our living expense actually our living expense for two people per month is about 300 euros so <laughs> you don't need to earn very much to get to, um, to cover th that kind of expense so yeah so it sounds very really good um you mentioned that you're mid uh, that you're living with your girlfriend twice yes yeah it's a new one or you you have it already for 10 years or 20 10 years or yeah, yeah same same, years. same person i mean we actually same have person. a registered partnership in netherlands But ah, it's not really yeah, it's not recognized in Portugal. They're a bit more backwards here. So same so, in Germany, you can only marry. Um, no registered partnership. No, that would be really interesting. Well, interesting. Ah. Yeah, they, well, the UK only recognized heterosexual registered partnerships as of December last year, only two months ago. So <laughs> that's uh, that's how behind mm. the times um, a lot yes. of countries are. Yeah, unfortunately. So yeah, we have to wait. <laughs> But even in France, I, I heard. I've heard in France they have also registered partnerships for, uh, for heterosexual people. Isn't it like that? Um, honestly, I don't know. I, it wouldn't surprise okay. me. But yeah, I, I just didn't really feel like I wanted to be following the establishment. You know, getting married and that. Oh my god, so all of that was would drive me mad. I th it's just keep it simple and you know, and you can also convert to marriage later on if you need with a uh, with a. Uh, registered partnership but for, for now it serves us just fine yes wonderful so you can hang out in portugal with your partner you don't have to go to office so what have you learned originally from from your what did, did you have studied so yeah i studied civil engineering i studied in the uk uh for my whole life as you can probably tell by my accent um and then so i did a masters of civil engineering i don't have a bachelor's degree i went straight to masters and Then I'd studied for a couple of years a PhD in Imperial College London. That was electromechanical engineering. Turns out the PhD lifestyle wasn't really my kind of thing. So I dropped out after about a year and eight months or something like that. 
But then I had a kind of period of self-reflectance, let's say, um, and you know, traveled around. Which for means about, drinking and traveling and so. it, the traveling, not so much drinking. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, and uh, but effectively, yes. <laughs> so we, after about seven months or so, I found myself in the Netherlands working for Shell. At that point, I was like quite broke, <laughs> so I needed a quick cash injection and where else to go other than an oil company. <laughs> Um, so I lived there, but then it was weird because I never really expected to go back to civil engineering, especially having studied a year and a half in electromechanical, but I, there I was in civil engineering, but also I, I didn't really expect to be an employee again. I, I need, I had to be an employee because I needed that cash injection, but I've been an entrepreneur all my life from the age of five. I've had my first business. I mean, I, it sounds grand, but really it's just a yard sale. But I've always been buying and selling stuff for profit with parents' help, of course, because you can't have a credit card or whatever when you're six. But um, yeah, I've always been doing that kind of stuff. But um, here I am as, as an employee working in Netherlands. And I'd already had a year of working when I was 18 to 19 um, in civil engineering as well which is what surprised me more when I did end up as an employee again, because it's a very different mentality to being an entrepreneur and everything about um, receiving a salary, let's say, is, is very different to taking the risk and trying to go for the profit, let's say capital gains or dividends. And the hardest part actually working in Netherlands, well, actually working for Shell, is that you're surrounded by people who don't believe in in the kind of for-profit ventures of entrepreneurship you're surrounded by people who are very well paid objectively they have they're easily within the top 20 maybe 10 even five percent of earners in the netherlands but they're there with golden handcuffs <laughs> they've just bought all they've done is buy more and more expensive cars houses and their things they make financial decisions which just do not make any mathematical sense to me and i'm a very mathematical person and if the cash flow doesn't improve after um, every big decision, then you've made a wrong decision. <laughs> um, that's not to say like it needs to, the cash flow needs to improve immediately. Like for instance, if you buy yourself a tuition course in something and the cash flow only improves in twenty four months time, fine, that's um, that's probably a good decision. But if you're buying a car which depreciates, <laughs> so you can't sell it again at the same value, and it's going to cost you pet- uh, more petrol or diesel. And it's going to cost you higher insurance, everything. That is a really bad decision. So, yeah, it's being but being surrounded by people like that, and especially it was the time of the oil downturn um, after two years as well. So people were stressed out about the job, and I was kind of rubbing my hands and thinking, "Well, fantastic, you know, let's see what people are made of." So yeah, that was um, that was quite an experience working there. Um, but please, never again. I just do not want to be an employee again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it, I, I could also imagine, or I know, I know also that the mindset of, the, of an employee is uh, much different. They also buy homes um, that are quite too expensive to generate cash flow, or you have to pay a mortgage for 30, 40 years. And they, they're just not planning to escape. They're, they, you know from their decisions, they plan to stay, because yeah, that's the well, thing and, you do. Well, and also, so Shell had a final salary pension, and like nearly every one who was around me was thinking, yeah, go for the final salary pension. And I'm there thinking, but it's okay. Final salary pension makes sense only if you're going to 
accumulate a lot of years with the same employer because no one gives final salary pensions now. So you can't port it over to a new company. So not only do you have to spend a lot of years with the same employer, you have to like hope you live a long time after you retire, which by the way, during the my first six months in Shell, the, the Dutch government raised the retirement age by like two years. So like everyone is saying do it, but in my mind, it just does not work. And I think speaking to a few of the people I did trust um, working in Shell, I mean, they weren't in the same office, but there are very few people I trust with financial decisions. They, they, weren't, <laughs> they weren't going in for the final salary pension either. Um, they were going in for the quick cash flow and, and then moving on when necessary. And neither of them works for Shell now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you you cannot plan for the next 10, 20 years. I mean, no. you can also now see with the banks um, that they are laying off um, people and it, it happens from, from time to time and um, time changing. And um, I think these pension schemes um, uh, are kind of outdated. And also in Germany, they not even from the from the broker as they are recommended if you if you're talking to them yeah well and also like conceptually if you just think about what a pension is like when you retire you've got a big pot of money you can either sell that for an annuity or you draw down from it and hope you can retire uh, you hope you have enough for the rest of your life and if you want to pass some of it down to future descendants that's that's what you do but as fire has become more popular now like it wasn't really a thing back when I was still working there but conceptually it was to stop you doing the same thing now <laughs> um, and if the purpose if, of an annuity is to cover your expenses then what really like your goal then is to have sufficient cash flow from unearned sources to cover your expenses which I already more or less was doing towards my at the end of my time working in Shell and it's definitely happening now nearly all of my income now is from passive sources so yeah like on, on paper My net worth might not be as high as many other people, but you know I'm, I'm cash flowing just fine, and I don't need to work. Um, it's the quick, it's the thick and thin of it. Uh, pretty good. Just a little bit of logical thinking can can do for your cash flow and for your life situation. Yeah, um, really mind blowing. And how long um, have you um, played your role uh, at um, at the company? For how so long? I, I was there, there for three years, so 2013 to 2016. And you told me that you um, that you built also a business uh, as you always did. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, you got to uh, specify which one because I've had loads and loads. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned um, the the business for the civil engineering the the, the website and yeah. the points to be made website and yeah. um, you started creating or, or opening this this business during the um, the time was um, with yeah. Dutch. So or? yeah, so actually, so points to be made has been going a lot longer. So points to be made has was started 2012, so just after I left the PhD time ah. and before starting in Netherlands. So I always had that running in the background, and that's how that's how the cash flow side of it was um, was helping me. I've always been very frugal anyway. Um, the only thing I'm a little less frugal on is travel, but just generally, like I can, my expenses are very low. But yeah, so my points to be made website has been going for about eight years, and uh, the structural exam is my civil engineering tuition website and that's been going since 2016 it was registered like a few months before but we did nothing for the first few months so yeah 2016 and that's um that's a fantastic source of cash flow as well <laughs> um those two combined really are life-changing and yeah <laughs> i i just think that um you can decide so many more things when you have when you have your own company 
And when you're an employee, you're very much bound to what the 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 gods above tell you, even if you think it's wrong. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and and you could um, you, so you mentioned you had other the business already before, mm. and you uh, did you ask the um, the company if you can have a side business because normally it's kind of forbidden uh, to have uh, another business. Yeah, normally it is. I did I did ask my company, yeah, and I told them up front, and they said it's fine. I mean, like <laughs> a, a travel website is not going to be um, conflicting with offshore engineering. So that that was no problem. The reason I did nothing for the first few months with the structural exam was because I did feel that that was going to be more of an issue. So I waited until I was I was leaving to then start the stuff on that. But I already had all of the structure planned in mind. But also mentally, I'd already checked out from my job as well. Like that's um, within about two or three months, I realized that this job wasn't going to be for me. And I don't know how I lasted for three years, but. Yeah, <laughs> funny things that people do for money. Um, and um, yeah, so but I'd already planned my way out uh, for quite a long time. Interesting how fast you checked out from your job mentally. Um, yeah. <laughs> normally I, uh, it takes me a little bit longer. One question also, uh, how could you then, how did you have the energy then? Because you worked for them three years and um, how did you have the energy to, yeah, to write your blog articles or to manage your affiliate links and whatever mm. you have to do there in the evening or in the morning or lunchtime or? Lunchtime is planning the blog post and the evening was writing it. So, but I didn't write, um, I didn't write that much during my time at Shell. Um, I was probably posting like twice a week at, at the maximum, let's say five times a week. Um, but if you just follow the Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule, like you keep only focus on the 20% of activities that generates the 80%. Um, and I'm a, I'm a massive nerd for anything to do with efficiency. So <laughs> just to make sure that everything you do has some sort of efficient value to it, But um, like one of the things that made me realize that the job wasn't going to work, um, and because it's, it's on the theme of energy, mental energy, is like nearly everything I did was super easy. Like even for, well, for anyone really, uh, made worse. But like, <laughs> because like in my department, I was probably one of the lesser qualified people with just a master's. Nearly everyone else had a PhD or a or, or master's. It's not big group. But we're managing 70 offshore platforms between seven people. But I think the real kicker there was like the managers didn't realize that mod with modern technology, and I use the word technology loosely because it's just a lot of VBA macros and scripting, a lot of the jobs can be automated, including theirs, <laughs> and they don't see it. And I did. So basically, like by 10 past nine on a Monday morning, every single week for two and a half years, my job for the entire week was already done because I had already scripted everything. And despite begging for more challenging work and more meaningful work, it just wasn't coming. And there was no way out because it was, I was in the, like a satellite division of Shell. Like Shell is an enormous conglomerate, of course, but I was working for the, for the joint venture with ExxonMobil in the north of Netherlands, near in the town called Groningen. It's near the German border. Yeah, but yeah, um, But yeah, it's a very, the job I was doing was way too easy for people with um, with intellectual capabilities, just like everyone else in the department. And so like, and it's the same complaint with all the other graduates as well. Like, um, it just was not in any way challenging. So I just, I found just more interesting things to do with my time. 
So like I, I was looking like I was busy for like four and a half days of the week, but um, mentally I was kind of elsewhere. Think looking back on it, like I should have actually left my job within the first six to eight months when the cash kind of situation was a bit better and and uh, ventured out into other things. But you know, <laughs> you, you, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Okay, what what triggered you then uh, to to finally quit quit your job then after three years? And um, was it the cash flow that you had enough cash flow, or did you then had less time, or was the relation to your boss or team colleagues wasn't uh, um, good enough? I would say the relation with with my direct colleagues was fine. It's it's always been fine. My immediate boss was fine. It's the it's the boss above him who was an absolute prick. <laughs> But so relationship definitely matters. And like on a day to day on a day to day situation, yeah, like it completely drains your energy if you're constantly fighting office politics. But also the philosophy behind what Shell was doing, it just didn't really gel with me. I don't. And by philosophy, I don't mean the the oil exploration and stuff like that. I'm talking about things like how they use their employees. Um, so, um, for instance, it's less of an advantage now, but in the Netherlands, there's this thing called a 30% tax ruling. So basically your first 30% of your income is not taxed. Um, and so you're effectively taxed on 70%, which makes a huge saving because in Netherlands, it's a 52% tax rate at, at back when I was doing it in my bracket. But Shell decided to confiscate that tax advantage. <laughs> and And you're thinking like, hang on, I've moved here for the purpose of getting this and you're, you're confiscating that. Uh, no, thanks. Um, and then my boss was an expat going from the UK to Netherlands. So same as me, but he was being um, paid net. So like the, the figure that they say is your base salary, he was getting paid net, whereas I was being taxed at 52%. So it makes a huge difference, especially like, you know, if you're a boss in Shell, at his level, you're, you're earning like 180,000 euros or something, probably more. And he's getting paid net. Whereas as, as a graduate at Shell, you're, you know, you're, you're about 45 to 70,000 euros, depending on how many years in you are, but you're taxed at 52%. So considering we came from the same kind of uh, situation of moving from one country to another, it didn't really make sense for me. So just the whole philosophy behind that just uh, was not something I agreed with. And at this point, I just want to quickly inform you that Tim was kind enough to prepare a spreadsheet and video with explanations how contracted work and salaries are taxed in Europe. You can find it in the show notes on our website financial-independence.eu or just click the link in your podcast app. All right, so finally you quit because of the, the boss above your boss. Mm -hmm. um, the, the tax you have to pay for your salary, yeah. which is really a lot. I mean, 52% yeah. this is kind of robbery. Yeah, it this is. more than in Germany. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's not much different to many other places, though. Like even now in Portugal, we talk about tax advantage. But okay, so this is one thing like the salary amount uh, mentality shift uh, is the theme of this, which I'm trying to get at. So I'm trying to explain to colleagues like 52% is robbery. But in Netherlands, there's a um, dividend is not taxed. Well, it's, it's treated as investment as a whole, and you're only taxed at 1.2% of your personal wealth above 25,000 euros. And it's probably changed a lot because I've been out of Netherlands since 2016. But like, if you're not taxed on, or, or effectively very little tax on investment wealth, obviously the country is trying to skew you towards that direction. <laughs> so so I, in the end, I was just treating my salary just like as a top up to my investment account. And my real work is in the evenings, reading through company reports and trying to find the next company or whatever to invest in, because that's where the gain is. 
that's the same with an, with an employee. You pay maybe 43% tax yeah. if you're not married, but then you have to pay also tax um, if for your shopping. You have to pay exactly. tax and you have to pay tax for tobacco, for fuel, uh, for uh, for um, inheriti so, inheriting uh, your your property. So, so yeah, so if you want to uh, if you want to be earning like tax. 25 let's say 2,500 euros a month, that's probably a bit too little. Let's say 3,500 euros a month, divide by 0.08, you're, you need to be turning over 43,000 or 43,750 euros per month, including VAT, just to get 3,500. That's what it's like as a, like a one-man contractor. Mm -hmm. And you know that's, that's a really good business if you've got a 30% profit margin. <laughs> like... In civil engineering, you're talking 2%, 6%. So this is why I keep telling my uh, mentees, like, they've got it. They've got a heck of a journey <laughs> in front of them if they plan to stay in that industry. And that's why I bailed out. I know oil industry is a bit different. Then profit margins are a bit higher. But still, most of it is you're, you're under pressure to keep improving the performance to pay out as dividends to investors. So it's such a... Um, It's a long way to go. It's and a long you way to go. Kind yeah. of have to have to hack the system and cut out some of these uh, expenses uh, yeah. or taxation. And it's it's also and what what you just said about paying tax on things like um, cigarettes or petrol or just shopping anything. That's one of the reasons why like I don't really believe so much in a fire number. I know like twenty five x is is like the common thing that anyone everyone uses. But I, I, I challenge everyone um, on that because 25x, you're talking, um, you're trying to say like the money you have is um, 25 times your annual expense. But that's that works if um, if you're comparing like to like. So what by that, I mean the income you get from the investment. So you're assuming 4% growth and 3%, sorry, 4% expense, 3% expense and 7% growth total. But you're assuming that you're not going to be taxed on that <laughs> at the 4%, but your, your, your expenses are an after-tax expense. So for instance, if, you're, if your dividend tax is around 20 to 25%, which most countries are, you need to be increasing your 25x by another 20% just to cover the tax on the dividend. So already you're at 30x, you do need to price in volatility of the market because the 25x is saying a long-term situation but you know you never know when you need to pay a very large expense at at any given notice so after making factors for these adjustments i'm thinking you need to be at 40x not like 25x but the main philosophy behind that is you've got sufficient passive cash flow so like that's that's the thing which sounds contradictory to me like when i say there is no real number to fire i i just think that um in the thick and thin of it you just need to have a strong sense of independent judgment And you may be wrong, you may be right, and other people may disagree with you, but as long as you formulate your own sensible judgments, or at least you think it's sensible, then live by it and um, hope for the best. Because <laughs> a lot of the world is about luck <laughs> right now as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so a um, couple of suggestions. I would say you you can um, maybe send me the calculation also sure. um, for people to read it, um, that we can put it in the show notes, because I'm a reading person and yeah. like to think about it also now again. And people can also uh, think about it when they read the show notes. So you mentioned, okay, you need more than 25 times of the net worth. Mm. And there are always these both um, two tribes, I would say. Um, one tribe is the net worth number. The other tribe is the, I don't care about the net worth. Um, mm. I just go from my 
net worth and try to increase my net worth. And then I can, because every month you can see your net flow, cash flow mm -hmm. and then you know that you need more cash flow. And then, yeah, you try to try to improve the number um, by adding another business or um, yeah. buying more stocks or getting a new job or getting a side, side hustle. And I think that's the best to for me, at least to, to navigate, to navigate to the FI zone you like you like to go yeah i mean i think for most people i i know fi has been getting a lot of bad reputation in in uk press i also think that it's so heavily misunderstood <laughs> by mainstream press in the end like financial independence is what you make of it like you know you could be 95 um covering your your cash flow could cover 95 of your expense and you could call yourself financially independent and so be it. You know, who who am I to judge what someone else thinks about their own finances? But to me, like financial independence really comes down to are you in a position to take, let's say, a bigger risk in, in whatever context that could be? Are you in a position to take a bigger risk than you previously would have been? And for me, like that's that's the name of the game. So and yeah, like I said, I don't think I'll retire early. I'm I'm 33 in a few weeks' time, and there's such a long way to go in life. <laughs> you know, like wh why are why are people retiring? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, I've I've got this is why I do mentoring. I get so much pleasure out of watching these guys, these people grow, like professionally, and and all the, also those light bulb moments when <laughs> when they realize they've got to be earning like 98 times what their take home pay is going to be. They're very smart people. Um, like one of my mentees came top of his class at the University of Cambridge in engineering. Um, another two of them have been selected by the president of the Institution of Civil Engineers as future leaders. But um, for them, a lot of this financial stuff is a wake up call. Um, I don't. I don't mean it. Sorry if they're listening. Um, I hope they're not. But um, I'm sure they will. <laughs> and yeah, like it's it's a huge wake up call for them because they're gonna. If if I hadn't intervened, I'm sure that they would have just probably gone about their ways. And I can tell them, I've told them already, like it's not what what they're doing from a personal finance perspective makes absolutely no sense. And it's not just no sense, it's damaging. It's damaging whatever ambitions they had, you know, for because they're at the age where they're probably gonna be thinking about starting a family. You know, they're late twenties. So then they're only like four to five years younger than me, but they're at the stage where they need to be making good financial decisions for their children's education, for buying a house or whatever. Hmm. Otherwise, um, the, their financial independence would be delayed uh, pretty much in the future. But maybe a little bit back to the topic, if, mm. if you allow. Are you a solopreneur or, you, or at least at the time you've left your job, mm. have you been a solopreneur just working yourself on your business or have you also employed other people to to leverage their time to, to earn Yeah, and improve your business. For the most part, I've been solopreneur, but recently I have been hiring people. So, for, for for instance, the structural exam. So that's teaching people to pass a very difficult exam to get their license to practice engineering. I don't. Well, at the time that I started that website, I didn't have it. <laughs> so, of, of course, I'm going to hire the best people I can find to teach it. And who better than the chief examiner of the uh, of that exam? Um, he was he was getting a bit annoyed with the institution who was giving the exam. So I hired him, and he joined us, and um, we made some nice ebooks out of it. And we're all happily living off the revenue from that. Points to be made has been um, solo for seven and a half years, but since November. December, I've I've started hiring a guy to look for airfares nonstop for me. So like every day we post like between two and four very attractive business class airfares. 
and um, he's he's looking for it. Look, he's looking for it for me, and I use him because he's uh, he used to work behind a ticket desk in an airport, and so he knows all the fare rules. He knows he knows the routing rules. He knows where to look, um, and he's happy doing that all day, every day, <laughs> and fantastic for me. I have a great sense of pride in giving this job to him. And actually, um, so that's, you- that's one of the best things about uh, being an entrepreneur. Like, even though I don't really feel like a team player, even though, even though you're kind of trained to be and you're told that you're going to get nowhere in life without being a team player, like, um, I do enjoy the solo aspect, but I also do enjoy the aspects where I, you know, get to hire people and change their lives as well. What you did is not uh, hiring a random virtual assistant or somebody uh, from Fiverr, but you really made sure that they are a fit for the the venture, either the yes. um, the ebook venture for the um, civil engineering exam or the points to be made, which is an airline yes. uh, website for. I mean, to, um, I did. I did have a period of time where I was hiring a virtual assistant. I would say, I mean, it was okay. I also hope she's not listening. <laughs> um, I mean, she, she's a really lovely lady, and she she got what she, what I asked her done. But I also felt like a lot of the time to delegate the task to the virtual assistant and trying to train them up to a system was perhaps not the best use of time because there's outsourcing, but there's also the training time to it as well, and that's often not factored into um, the calculation. Whereas this guy, like he knew. This new guy, he's 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 not really a virtual assistant, actually. Uh, he really is just. I mean, he lives just down the road from me. So, and so, even though he works remotely, he's only like three hundred meters down the road. So we we meet every every few days just to ch- catch up on how it's going. But yeah, I I think on the on the grander scale of things, people who are specialized at a particular task or particular few tasks, and have the mental capability to expand onto a few other things, I think that pays off in the longer run. They'll cost more, definitely, but yeah, nearly nearly everything, every kind of menial task that you have is probably just better either to do it yourself or script it <laughs> with with all sorts of um, scripting tools these days, Python, JavaScript, whatever, um, to do it on your behalf. Yes, it's also what Alva's doing. I think his, his laptop is uh, kind of broken, but he at least scripted everything. Yeah. Um, I also would like to uh, look into it. Uh, just a question. When is it better to stay solopreneur? And when do you know, okay, now it's the time to to hire somebody? And you, you mentioned you're very picky. Um, you're not taking any random, random person. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess they might have um, a relation to, to the business you're ac- actually running. But in the end, if you want to grow a business, sometimes you also need more people or more partner. So how how would you scale your mm. business? Or are you not planning? It's a really hard question to answer because I genuinely don't think there's a right answer. There could be a lot of wrong answers, but there is no single right answer. For me, the, the judgment that I made was, will it be cash flow positive? <laughs> it was It was as simple as that. For instance, I pay this guy a certain amount per month, which you know, equates to a certain amount per hour. So he's working on points to be made. But then in the meantime, I've got, you know, maybe I can save six hours per day if I outsource a lot of stuff to him. I can work on the engineering stuff, which, which um, on a, let's say on an hourly basis, pays a lot more than points to be made. It probably isn't quite as scalable, but for the cash flow perspective, like for instance, we're selling these ebooks at 75 pounds for the book <laughs> like uh, that's that, that's a pretty good business that we've got there but i want to update um and 
have a second edition of that coming out soon. That's the kind of work you can't really outsource. I'm, I'm at a level where I can write it myself now. And yeah, it's not really a situ- it's not the kind of thing you can outsource. And actually, maybe in your show notes as well, I'd like to put um, I'd like to reference Cal Newport. Deep work is the is the thing that influenced me to make that decision. Basically, like what stuff genuinely needs you to do it, and not because there are a lot of tasks which are difficult. But I think that the his yardstick, his measurement is like how long would it take me to train a reasonably intelligent graduate level person to do an item of work. And if the answer is, you know, maybe two weeks, then that is not deep work and that can be outsourced to nearly anyone. If it's stuff that is really specialised, for instance, how to write something to pass the engineering exam, that is not something that can be taught to a graduate because this this is the kind of stuff that needs like seven years of training. And so that's why I do it and not not the graduate. And also the mentoring that I give on that, has a quite a high hourly rate. That's the stuff that makes me makes it cash flow positive to hire my guy working on points to be made. Okay, I understand because uh, looking for airfares, it's it's might be simpler than than engineering. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's easier, but I would say it's there are there are more people willing to do that than than mm. the engineering stuff. I don't I don't think it's easier at all. Actually, well, yeah, okay, it is a bit easier, but it's not like it's not the kind of stuff where Because it does take, you know, five or six hours per day just to look for airfares. And then from that, you need to hope that you, you convert that into an affiliate sale and, you know, get, get a small commission out of that. Whereas the engineering stuff, I can more or less uh, predict how much uh, demand there is going to be in any particular week because these exams are very seasonal. And so, like, you know, I can say, okay, T minus 12 weeks, I know I'm going to get this many customers. And, I, and I've been pretty accurate over the last five years so for me it's, it's a very black and white decision and for me as well the more objective a decision is the less guilty i will feel if i get it wrong down the line i can say mm. with hindsight i believe i made the right decision at that point in time whereas if you start getting the emotion side involved it's kind of hard to replicate and think back objectively <laughs> whether that was a right decision or not um And a lot of businesses can be decided on emotion, and that's absolutely fine. But for me, it's ultimately, it's only me accountable. I'm a 100% shareholder in one company, majority shareholder in the other company. And, you know, I want to make sure that I've got, because, yeah, it's, it's only, it's all the burdens on my shoulders. So I want to make sure that I've got a system which I feel comfortable with. And it's also a per- personal question, um, mm-hmm. what you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. And um, just a question. Uh, I mean, there are maybe a couple of listeners sitting in big companies, not knowing what to do, pretending to work. Uh, what would you recommend them if they want to copy your business model? What would they? What actions do they need yeah. to st- uh, take? Funnily enough, I was spending about two hours this morning before this interview thinking whether this question would show up. <laughs> um, and if it did... Then, you know, thinking about the answer to that. So, Jackpot. <laughs> yeah, fantastic for you. Um, so, in nearly every business, there's always going to be someone that is better than you <laughs> and at any particular task. So, like, even though I got first class engineering degrees, I've got, you know, I've got top of the grid, top straight A's, everything that you could possibly imagine, I always think there's someone better than me. <laughs> and, and, It has always been proven. I've always been proven right. There is someone who's better at, faster at learning something than me. Someone who's just more competent in general. However, the business value that I 
almost always bring to someone else is my mix of skills. So, for instance, I talk I talked about about coding and and programming stuff like that. There's fantastic computer scientists, and I do make the difference between computer science and programmer. By the way, there's people who can write much better algorithms, faster codes. Like I would never pass a technical interview at a job. However, I can program a whole load better than most civil engineers out there, and I can do civil engineering a lot better than most programmers out there. <laughs> so you carve out niches in in all sorts of interfaces that you have. And I've only mentioned one example, but you know, for some person, they might be really good at. Do you mind if I ask you what you're really good at? Like two quite different skills. I'm really good at cloud um, cloud consulting, mm -hmm. okay, um, or Microsoft cloud stuff mm -hmm. and uh, marketing. Okay. Or yeah, not really the perfect one, but at least well, but I'm well, good at the point because the point I'm trying to make is like in civil engineering, like it's mostly run by a whole load of 50, 60 year old white men who've never done any programming. And yes, or like I, my father. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you don't need to be very good at any particular kind of distinct skill to really have a huge advantage over them. And this is why like my, um, my engineering website works because the, the people who run the institution, these exams, none of them know how to program. And so for them to, create an online course that it took them three or four years to, to come up with a competing product for me because they've had to contract out everything. It's cost them a lot of money. Whereas I can, do, I, I can create something in about a week and I don't have to go through a whole load of decision processes just to arrive at, you know, awarding a contract. I, I just decide immediately and off we go. So you take some, some old niche um, that is existing for a hundred years, we like engineering mm. and you com combine it with digital skills. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's quite a good general summary, actually. Like if you can take any old traditional industry and make it more modern, then um, if you're, if you can be a first mover, then that is fantastic. And by the way, like my website, this, this website is not an original idea at all. <laughs> I've copied it from Pat Flynn, who runs Smart Passive Money, Smart Passive Income, I think, .com. He, he was an architect and he, uh, he was about to m get made redundant at his work. And so he created an architecture website. It was actually just for him to learn how to, how to pass an exam. And all I've done is saying, well, hang on, if it works for architecture, I've got an equally difficult exam, which, you know, the pass rate is only 20% these days. Fantastic. And it takes 500 pounds to take each exam. And most people take like three or four times to do it. So yeah, why not create a 75 pound ebook? You know, at least if, if someone can potentially save an extra reset, they've, they're, they're up 425 pounds. So really like for people who are thinking of making a pivot in their career, a few things, how quickly and how agile are they in general? And that comes down to a bit of risk tolerance mentality as well. How agile are they? How many distinct but complementary skills do they have? I, I, and for instance, like, um, I keep referencing other things because I, I, I spend so much time researching what other people do as well. But like um, Two Set Violin on YouTube, like they're, they're YouTubers, but they're very highly trained classical violinists. But instead of going performing and becoming the best person playing Beethoven and then Mozart every two days, they're making YouTube videos on um, mucking around. And it's, it's fantastic, entertaining watch. Um, they're probably making just as much money as a musician because they get paid nothing, really. 
But uh, I think they're being paid a lot more because they've got like two, th- two million subscribers. But oh, wow, not bad. Yeah. <laughs> in a and short I have also time. an example. We have, uh, I think a couple of months ago, we had somebody in the show uh, who was a dentist and he made a website to explain people how to pass dentist exams. Ah, interesting. <laughs> okay. I didn't know. Um, so tuition is a big industry, um, but also like take traditional jobs in a country that has moved on so far beyond being traditional, such as let's say the UK plumbers can make so much money just doing plumbing <laughs> um, because it's such an in-demand skill. Now, there's a big issue of tragedy of the commons, and I can kind of see that happening with, let's say, programming now. But like everyone right now in Portugal is jumping to try and learn programming because it obviously pays more than their typical salaries here. But once you start getting you know, half of the nation wanting to be programmers, then any, everyone will start trying to undercut each other. I say, like, look at plastic surgeons in Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, people studied plastic surgery 20 years ago because they saw the impact it was having. And now it's not as quite as lucrative. It's still not bad, but it's not what, probably not what they thought it was. So this is where the first mover advantage comes in. And uh, maybe how is it anti-cyclical and, behavior? Yeah. Um, how is it called in English? Yeah, anti-cyclical or contrarian, maybe. Contrarian, um, yes. In investing, it's contrarian. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in general, that mindset is not bad either. What it does do, if, even if you don't act on what you think is going to happen, what it does do is make you try to pick out every single flaw in the standard mindset. And I, if anything, I would say FIRE is a little bit contrarian to the typical mindset of most employment and careers. And I absolutely love it. <laughs> um I think what I would say is like, it really tries to make you think objectively behind every fundamental philosophy, for every axiom that um, any industry is built upon. And yeah, just by thinking through all of that, then you can probably pick a loophole, no, not loophole, but a flaw somewhere in the logic. And if you can build upon that, then power to you. And if not, then at least you have the courage to actually try it. <laughs> So you, you you would say not being against the hype or a contrarian because of it, just try to objectively look at the hype and look at yeah. the, uh, the opposite and then try to make your decision. I think, yeah, I, it, it all comes down to independent judgments. And that's actually one of the things that I look for in someone if I'm trying to hire them or even mentor them. Yeah, I, I pick my mentees carefully. The, the ability to try and think for yourself, even if I completely disagree with you, As long as you've arrived at that decision in a logical way and you can express it in a succinct way, then I have reason to believe that you could be right and I could be wrong. Everything in life, really, it can be quite irrational. <laughs> so, you know, like, um, who, who's going to be lucky then? I don't know. And honestly, it's not, you know, you're not trying to win every single decision in life. <laughs> you just you just try to... Avoid them. Uh, avoid <laughs> catastrophic mistakes and you'll probably be okay. Like, you know, if you're yeah. trying... Avoiding a catastrophic mistake in the context of fire, maybe, you know, is probably putting money in an index fund. You know, you're, you're going to get probably a predictable growth over time. You're It will go down every now and then, like <laughs> like this week with coronavirus. But on the grand scheme of it, you're not going to be catastrophically wrong. Like you know, but if you're going to definitely go contrarian because it's you're trying to be trendy, just just make sure you know what you're doing. Okay, Tim, we have to finish it up. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think we will see each other again in another episode um, because um, you have too much to say. <laughs> we have too much to learn. Um, just one question, and then we have some. Standard questions. Uh, last question is, is, are you missing anything out um, 
people have if, if they work as an employee in a classic career, maybe the social contacts, uh, are you missing maybe the possibility to for last, large scale projects or for to acquire certain skills? Uh, um, any, any downside you could think of? Huh, funnily, I, I actually asked my some friends, some very equally high performing friends who are still employees this. What they said is the thing that they would miss is what I absolutely do not miss. So for instance, like the social contacts between other people. Yeah, I, I definitely do miss it every now and then. But what I would say is I've built a network around me of similarly minded or even contrarian minded, but at least they think independently. Um, I've built up a network of people around me who are entrepreneurs rather than employees of a particular industry. So I don't really miss the the big project stuff. There are only so many times where like taking a helicopter to work is fun. <laughs> um, after about five times, you start to think, oh my God, okay, I don't want to wake up at 4.30 in the morning anymore. <laughs> and I don't miss the commute. I used to commute an hour each way, nearly 10 years of kind of employee working life and PhD life as well, an hour each way. Paid out of your after-tax money, by the way. You know, that's, that's, a clear, that's another thing. I don't miss the dry cleaning bills for my suit. I don't miss having to wake up 20 minutes earlier just to either iron my shirt or anything like that. It's, um, I would say it's all good when you've got your freedom. And actually, I think I value freedom much more than money itself. So I guess I can't convince you of going back um, to employee work um, and giving up on that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if if, the, if push comes to shove and I need the money, yeah, I'll do it. But it's not something I would choose um, up on the priority list. So where can people find you online? I guess uh, points to be made would be a place to look for you. Yep. But any other preferred channels? Well, yeah, so points to be made com is my Air Miles blog. Um, there's the structural exam.com. Um, that's the engineering one. On Facebook, just type in points to be made or the structural exam. I'm there. <laughs> um, and Twitter at PTB made at the time. <laughs> uh, you can have so many characters. So at PTB made on Twitter. I've got to say that I'm not very active on social media. That's one of the best things about the freedom side of things. Like I can choose where to delegate my time and social media. I don't try to weigh myself up against other people. Um, mm. It only depresses you. You're, you're comparing your entire life with the highlights of their life. And that's a dangerous game to play. So stick stick with what you uh, feel comfortable with. So maybe just Reddit. Uh, Red, um, well, I love Reddit, I've got to say. But a lot of the stuff on there is fake. So um, <laughs> read, take away okay. the pinch of salt. Is there any resource you could maybe you could maybe suggest that could help people either to build a business or to be faster with their plans for financial independence? Any very good, maybe not well-known resource? One not very well resources me. Um, I mean, I, I do consulting um, for people on, on that kind of stuff, especially in the in the context of company formation, like setting up companies and businesses for um, and personal finance advice on that as well. I still think fire and this kind of stuff is quite a underdeveloped game in Europe. It's very well known in US, and but the the tax is actually one of the biggest problems with Europe. So. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I will give you what I can think of and maybe you can put it in the show notes. Um, will do, will do. I will test your knowledge now. So I would say one one guy in the, in the university, what could be one actionable tip you could give them um, to achieve financial independence yeah. faster? Oh, okay. Oh man, if I could rewind time 15 years ago, I've got loads. But one tip, find the guy that everyone else is talking about 
or the guy or girl, um, find that person. It may, this person may be on your course, may not be on your course, but there's always one or two people that everyone is saying, hey, that person, they've just done this. They've just launched a new company. Find that person. Don't scavenge off their knowledge, um, but you know you need to provide value to them as well. And value could be your network of contacts. Try to keep imagining and actioning big business ideas with that person at university because your risk you basically have nothing to lose when you're at university. <laughs> um, you're young enough that you can recover from any bad business mistake and it's really good time to learn as well. And also, if you're going to become an employee after university, no one cares what your what degree grade you've got. So, I mean, one mistake that I made at university was trying to obsess over first class degree. Like, I guess it'll be cum laude or whatever um, in whatever system, but no one cares <laughs> after after you graduate. And actually, the older the person, the less they think university is relevant to their job. And I think that's that's inherently flawed. But um, yeah, your your degree will basically be worthless after about five years. So not for, not for McKinsey. Not for, well, maybe not for McKinsey. Um, but um, I mean, working you know working in a high value industry like oil as a structural engineer like my, my boss didn't even have a structural engineering degree so um whereas everyone else had phd and masters but um yeah i would say find so, find the person that everyone else is talking about and provide huge value to them not just mm-hmm. not just marginal but huge because you want to divert their attention to you and that only works when you can provide a huge differential of whatever else they've got in their network and then just try to collaborate and do business with them or just learn from them Yeah, exactly. And I, I regret not doing some of that at university. And that's why I can say it with hindsight now. But um, Or who knows, maybe I was that person, but I don't, I don't think so. Basically, the biggest thing that will carry you throughout your entire career is your network. And that's why I developed the networks around me. I, I have a real estate investor network. We do drinks every month. Everyone's feel free to come as well. But um, you know, I introduce them to good notaries, good bank managers, um, and then we trade between each other. You know, we, we buy apartments, we sell apartments to each other. We don't need the agents. So we, we always get the best deals because we can skip a whole load of other um, free market stuff. All right. So um, thank you, Tim, for your time. And um, we'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, it will be a lot. Um, <laughs> it will be. So, I'm sorry for please, the poor person who has to read through all of it, but I guarantee you it will change your life. Yes, hopefully. Um, pretty sure about that. <laughs> and also they can, uh, if you are on the website, you could also um, subscribe to our newsletter if you want. <laughs> please do. <laughs> Just Fantastic resource, Financial Independence Europe. So thank you very much. Uh, see you again. And um, bye-bye. Hey Matthias, do you think there are no financial independence Facebook groups yet? Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. Gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddits, in Facebook groups, the Fire Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is, in the end, the main reason why we started the whole podcast project to talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions, and like hopefully all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe Podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So yeah, just type in FI Europe Podcast. See you in the group. 
Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.